I want to start and pick up with Ephesians chapter 6, as we've been walking through this book in recent weeks. As we had mentioned earlier, Paul was sitting in jail and uh, writing to the Ephesians, yet the first few chapters you see this awe over his life of who God is and what he's done in us. With that said, he moves into some practical application things in chapter 4, 5, and 6. In chapter 4, he deals with selfishness, uh, takes on uh, some of the activities of life. It says you've got to be truth-tellers. It's not appropriate not to be. Um, he goes into things of anger and says uh, this is not characteristic of the way a Christian should live. He even deals with things like you're not supposed to steal anymore. And, and what, what that does to me is it, it, it alerts me that that culture was as depraved as anything we've been around. And yet, uh, our, our faith in this unseen God, it has this wonderful, powerful application of His love to the earth through the Son of Jesus Christ. It still must bear out in our activities of life. A true faith commitment to Christ has got to have application that touches our very values, character, beliefs, and action. And so... He's laying out basics and just saying, this is how life is. In the sixth chapter, it starts with a, a passage about children, but to really understand this passage, you've got to go back midway in, in five, because what Paul does is he takes on authority relationships, starts with husbands and wives, goes to children and parents, and then to masters and slaves. Now, you and I can look at that and we can say, what do you mean? He's doing this. Uh, it's an assumed order for him. Uh, when you walk through this, you'll see that uh, his approach is, uh, well, both in 1 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Timothy 2, he'll say that husbands and wives, that order was set before the fall. You know, he, he will make the argument that it's not about the fall, that this was actually predating the fall. So, He's assuming that. You can wrestle through it on your own. But that's the approach that he's taking. So when you, when you walk into this, just as God is authority over our lives, he says there are authority relationships in life. And that how we deal with those, now catch this. His main point is not the argument of how to treat each other and who has the rights as much as it is a declaration of you live for Christ in whatever situation you're in. That Christ might shine through your life, whether you're in authority or in a submissive relationship. And so that's his point when, when we walk through this, that Christ might shine in whatever situation we're in. And it, it, it's a crucial point because we tend in this culture to get caught up in the arguing of, is this right? Who's right? Who gets this? And it's self-centered more than it is Christ-centered. What, what he's presenting in here is saying, whatever situation in, you're in is not dependent on how the other's responding as much as it is you responding to Christ. Peter takes the same approach, by the way. I mean, in, in 1 Peter 2, 
He starts with emperors, authorities, moves to masters and slaves, and in chapter 3, he talks about husbands and wives. So the New Testament writers are kind of on that same page. It's just something that we're not used to hearing. Um, that said, in chapter 6, when he moves into this, children, you belong to the Lord. He says, you are Christ more than anything else. You do the right thing when you obey your parents. He's just making a declaration. He goes back to the Ten Commandments then, the fifth command, and says, the first commandment with the promise is obey your father and mother, and you will have a long and happy life. Again, I'm reading out of the contemporary English version. Um, it's more of a paraphrase. Some of it seems very accurate. Some of the wording, I, I like it because it reads easy. Parents, don't be hard on your children. This parent is generally translated fathers. Don't exasperate or don't make your children angry. Um, it can be translated parent, but it's, a, it's an obscure translation in that regard. But that said, he has challenged children. You live, you're the Lord's. You need to live that way. Then he takes on parents and says, don't be hard on your children. Raise them properly. Teach them and instruct them about the Lord. Some translation uses the terms discipline and instruct. Just like disciples and discipline, that same root word idea. He says, you have a responsibility to train your children appropriately. If we're going to model Christ, then there's a responsibility to model Him in all things. If your children don't understand authority relationships, how are they going to understand an authority relationship with Christ? If you do not present a direction for them or any kind of instruction, Scripture says that a father who doesn't discipline his child is akin to one who hates his child. And so he puts the, it, that, <laughs> how do you put this important enough? That comes out in the Proverbs. It's again quoted in Hebrews. And so the idea is it's a New Testament and Old Testament idea. And so when we walk through this, it's easy to get hung up on the first. Don't exasperate your children. Better, you know, you don't want to cripple the child. Don't want to, you know. But read the second half as well, okay? In, in fairness, there is a responsibility that accompanies parenthood. <laughs> this is a political statement. Much of what happened in Baltimore this week is a result of a parentless generation having no direction and instruction, no understanding, and the anger that builds within when you have no sense of life taking you anywhere or going anywhere. Having no destiny, no purpose. And so, not justifying the anger, but at the same time, recognizing it for what it is. That if a generation has grown up without any type of guidance, there is a frustration in life that says, what am I about and what's going on? And the only hope is to do something for themselves. 
What we have in Christ is something completely different because we have a Creator who made us, established a path for life, and as we relate to Him, there's an understanding that comes in whatever situation that we're in. And so there's an opportunity to say, God can be exalted in any position of life. God can be lifted up. He can be not only modeled through my life, but lived through my life. I was wrestling with words, you know, of, of what about these passages? You know, we should model Christ. It's more than model Christ. It's live Christ. Live as Christ would live. And so he calls us to that. And so to those that are leading, he says, you better be willing to lay down your life in sacrifice for those that are following you. You better be willing to give up your life just as Christ gave up his life for the church and treated the church as his own body. So he takes the same arguments and says, this is how Christ does it, so this is how I want you to do it. And then he says, as Christ was submissive to God the Father, and as the church is submissive to Christ, that's how, in a submissive role, that's how you live as well. You treat it as if Christ was doing the very thing. So when we talk to children and parents, there's a responsibility on both sides, whatever position you're in. And the question comes out, well, how long am I under my parents' rule? Basically, I'd say as long as you're on their coin, you're in their house. When you're living on your own, you know, don't, don't mean, I'm off on my own. I, you know, I need to, I'm free. No, if you're living under their, on their money or their dime, you haven't figured it out yet. So that's just a practical guideline. When you want to call the shots, quit accepting the coin. Anyway. <laughs> Spoken as a parent. <laughs> I'm not sure how I got there. Uh, let's go on. Slaves, you must obey your earthly masters. Again, we have one picture of slavery. What they were dealing with was not necessarily the same. But again, he's addressing authority in submissive relationships. Uh, 85 to 90% of the, the, the population of Rome were slaves. Um, or at least that's what people have, have written. Beyond that... You had the Greeks who were well-trained, and so often doctors and teachers and lawyers, all of that were Greeks, but they were slaves to the Romans. Then on the other side, on a brutality, you have people that were selected and said, you go fight in the Colosseum. Enjoy your life while it's there. You know, there were, there were extremes, both sides. But what Paul is addressing in this is saying, if you're in this role, and, and later in one other passage, he says, if you can get your freedom, get it. You know? But what he's truly addressing here is saying, if you're in this relationship, this is what I want out of you. You must obey your earthly masters, show them great respect, be loyal to them as you are to Christ. So what's he declaring? He says, you live as Christ in this relationship. 
Try to please them at all times, and not just when they think you're wa- when you think they're watching. Interesting concept there, isn't it? He's saying the unseen one is watching you. So whether you're unseen or not in this relationship, he says you live as the unseen one who's still watching you. You're slaves of Christ. So here's the identification. He says this is how you live. You identify yourself as a slave to Christ. And so in this submissive relationship, he says, you need to live honorably as Christ would live. With your whole heart, you must do what God wants you to do. Gladly serve your masters as though they were the Lord himself, and not simply people. You know that you'll be rewarded for any good things you do, whether you are slave or free. So he's going, there's a wider application here. On the slides, I put employer-employee because that's the closest thing we live. Truth is, some of us are better off being employees than employers. Run into many, many guys. If I could just get on my own. And then they get on their own and they realize, I'm a great carpenter but not a good businessman. And there's a lot more money to me be made with a lot less stress working for someone else. I see this as being a similar thing. I'm saying you have to sort out what your call in life is. Not all of us are wired the same. And we have to decide in the Lord, what is he asking of us? But even then, if you step into a relationship where you're working for someone else, you have an obligation to work in a noble manner as Christ would in that situation. And so it's not just, well, if they do this, then I will. That's never the argument in this passage. It's always about what we can do about our lives in our situation. That's what he's addressing. Knowing that we don't have the right to change everyone else so that we can have a a nicer life. But rather this addressing and saying, I know what I can do, and this is what I'm called to. Goes on, slave owners, you must treat your slaves with this same respect. (laughs) Respect. Don't threaten them. They have the same master in heaven that you do, and he doesn't have any favorites. So he, he goes back, and again, he says, this is similar to a relationship in connection with heaven. And so, as you want your heavenly master to be, That's the type of master you need to be. As you you recognize how he has provided and cared for you, the same way you need to take on that mindset as well. When he's dealing with Onesimus in the book of Philemon, and he sends him back, tells Philemon, he's a brother. And it's a very distinct addressing saying, You need to recognize that in Christ, there's an equality here. And he takes it on and just says, therefore, I encourage you to treat him like this. So as we've walked through this, again, whatever your situation of life, 
Live as Christ would live. That's the essence of this passage. He goes on then, changes subjects, moves on to the spiritual battle and the complications of life that we face in regard to such. He says, let the mighty strength of the Lord make you strong. As a person of Christ, a follower of Him, he addresses this and says, Christ will make you strong. Not about your own intelligence, not about your own abilities, not, just let Christ make you strong. Put on the armor of God that God gives you so you can defend yourself against the devil's tricks. We're not fighting against humans. Interesting, you know, just coming out of this other section, it's not about people he's making this declaration. The struggle that we're truly in is supernatural, and we are fighting against forces and authorities and against rulers of darkness and powers in the spiritual world. The New Testament moves the idea of battle from physical battle more into this, into this realm of spiritual battle. David in Psalm 18 says, God makes my arms strong for war. He also says he leads me in defeat over cities and, and peoples. And so, in a sense, David's saying in the application of God's work in my life, he says this has manifested itself in an earthly kingdom. Paul takes on this thing and says there's a spiritual battle in the unseen world. We need to be wise about such things. There's a temptation for us to get caught up in politics, particularly in this season because we're on the losing end regularly. And the idea is, you know, if we could just swing the tide and, and make this happen, then life would be a whole lot better. Well, there is a measure of truth to that, but the reality is that the, the true battle is of a supernatural nature, and we are fighting someone that is committed to lying and deceit and whatever it takes to win. Regularly, as Christians, in our discussions with folks, well, we'll have our space, you have our sp the, your space, we'll try to be nice, you be nice, and we'll all get along. Uh, that's not what we're involved in. And there's a spiritual dynamic to this, and the enemy is not committed to fighting fair, not committed to uh, equal spaces, but as in war, victory is the goal. So Paul goes and, and he takes this approach and says, okay, we're in this battle. You need to acknowledge that and accept it. To embrace that you will be in conflict all of your life. Until Christ's return and sets things straight, there is a battle that we are participant in. That said, he says, put on the armor that God gives. When the day of evil comes, you will be able to defend yourself. When the battle is over, you will still be standing firm. When Christ has set things straight, he said, you'll be standing at the end. Doesn't mean that there won't be any wounding. Doesn't mean there won't be any complications. Doesn't mean that there won't be any losses. But at the end of the day, when the battle is over, you'll be victorious. 
So these are the things you arm yourself. He says, let the truth be like a belt around your waist. And I, I hesitate to tie in too much to the armament itself, because it's obvious he's watching a soldier that's dressed like none that we see. And so we get, you know, all about the picture and sometimes miss the elements of what he's declaring to us. He says, commit yourself to truth. I mean, even one of the arguments in our culture is, is, is truth absolute or is it relative? Is your truth the same as my truth? That, that idea of relativism. But when we move into relativistic truth, there is no truth. The argument's already over if you embrace that. There is no argument. Because you can say, what's for you is fine, but it, it's different for me. So there's no real wrestling through that if, if you're not committed to the idea of absolute truth. But as Christians, we declare that God is. And so we say that what He has ordained is. And so there is an absoluteness to it that says, this is what's right, this is what's appropriate, this is how it's done. And we commit ourselves to that understanding. He says, and let God's justice protect you like armor. In other words, no, there is a fairness and a rightness to things. Embrace that. Find out what it is. Pursue it. Desire to tell the good news. Like your feet shod with the gospel of peace. He says, you know, in a sense, when I look at that, it's about movement, and it's, there's an assertiveness that says, do what you can to share the good news. Let your faith be like a shield. Have a confidence about the goodness of God. Let that surround you, protect you from assaults and say, where's God in this? Does anyone care? Let faith be that thing that says, God is good. And He does good for His people. And even in this, He will bring that into good. Let God's saving power be like a helmet. And a sword for use, God's message, it comes from the Spirit. I like the, the older translation, sword of the Spirit. In other words, let the Spirit give you words that pierce. Not only for your life, but for others. Let the Spirit hone things to such a measure that it cuts through all the bull and gets to the truth. Let the sword of the Spirit Reveal the things that are cloudy and murky. It's an awesome thing that we have access to God in this measure. Now he moves from this picture into a, kind of a final area and, and he addresses prayer and it's like he's saying, never let yourselves get far away from prayer. In fact, let it be the passion of your life. Never stop praying, especially for others. I mean, the tendency is to pray about ourselves regularly, but he says, 
always be in praying for others. Always pray by the power of the Spirit. Stay alert and keep praying for God's people. Pray that I'll be given the message to speak and that I may fearlessly explain the mystery about the good news. I was sent to do this work, and that's the reason I'm in jail. So pray that I will be brave and speak as I should. We think it kind of funny that Paul would be asking for bravery. But the prayers must have been answered, right? I mean, we can look back and say, that guy was as brave as anyone I know. He was praying for it. And we look and say, well, ah, you know, it's obvious. Obvious the prayer was answered. I want you to know how I'm getting along, what I'm doing. Then he says, I pray that God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ will give peace, love, and faith to every follower. May God be kind to everyone who keeps on loving our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good blessing for all of us, so let's listen again. I pray that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ will give peace, love, and faith to every follower. May God be kind to everyone who keeps on loving our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless the Lord. We thank you for this writing that speaks to us in the practical on how to love you and serve you. We pray, Lord, that in this moment as we ponder such things, that you will give us specifics out of this text that will speak to us on how to live. Whether it be in our marriage, in our family, in our employment, we ask that you would speak life. We pray that in the spiritual battle that you will make us strong. We ask that our prayer, our prayer life, would be vibrant in you. Amen. Because of the intimacy of marriage, the selfishness of our lives becomes a battlefield. What Paul is calling to us to is to lay down our lives for each other, to serve one another. And in that, Christ is lived out and modeled. And then it moves a, a sphere wider with family you know, parent and child. And again, as we live that out in Christ, as we demonstrate a, a, a life that is committed to the other, Christ is, the fruit of Christ is seen in the family. And, and the aroma of Christ, so to speak, comes out. You know, when in this congregation, because a lot of young marriages and young families, how can I do this well? Well, it's not about just changing your partner, because that, that chance of you really, you know, forcing change. But what the call is, is for each of us to give of ourselves unto Christ in such a manner that we are truly serving one another. And as we do that, then the health of what's possible comes out. In the same way then with family and then, then into the, the arena of employment where Christ is seen through our lives. 
You know, we can, we can look and say, I, I, I would prefer splashy and not have to deal with this on such a personal level. But what God calls us to is the personal level before he ever looks at the splashy. Let's get right what he's called us to get right and leave the rest in his hands as to when he exalts and when he lifts up. May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy that your order and rules and law are not for the detriment and not made by capricious choice, but are for the well-being and the flourishing in life of those who follow you. May they discover with joy what a privilege it is to serve you and experience your authority over them in life. Ask each, each one goes into the community that you'll give them words of life to speak over others. I pray that their deeds will be fitting with the workings of your kingdom. I ask that you'll enable them with the supernatural. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. We love you this day. Amen. God bless you.